So our amazing executive producer, Lily Percy, has taught me so much about movies across the years and how movie watching can make for big, deep, fun conversation. And now she's turned this passion of hers into On Being Studios' new podcast, This Movie Changed Me. I'm really proud of it. There are new episodes every other Tuesday. You don't have to have watched the movies in advance, but if you love You've Got Mail or The Nightmare Before Christmas or Star Wars, you're already ahead. This is a fabulous audio experience. Great thoughts, laughter, a few tears, and immersive movie music and moments. If you haven't listened yet, it's time. Support for On Being with Krista Tippett comes from the Fetzer Institute, helping build the spiritual foundation for a loving world. Fetzer envisions a world that embraces love as a guiding principle and animating force for our lives, a powerful love that helps us live in sacred relationship with ourselves, others, and the natural world. Learn more by visiting Fetzer.org. Many of my critics would be quite happy for me to stop calling myself a Buddhist. And even some of those who, who like my work uh, feel that the Buddhism gets in the way. But I disagree profoundly with that. The rootedness in tradition is, is, is central to me, and I see Buddhist tradition, I suspect like other traditions also, as not something which is static and fixed and somehow uh, preserved in formaldehyde, but it is something that is alive. Stephen Batchelor's Secular Buddhism speaks to the mystery and vitality of spiritual life in every form. For him, secularism opens to doubt and questioning as a radical basis for spiritual life. Above all, Stephen Batchelor understands Buddhism without transcendent beliefs like karma or reincarnation to become something urgent to do, not to believe in. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. Stephen Batchelor is the author of numerous books, including The Faith to Doubt, Confession of a Buddhist Atheist, and, most recently, Secular Buddhism, Imagining the Dharma in an Uncertain World. He grew up near London and traveled to India in the early 70s, where, he's often written, he was immediately captured by Buddhism. He spent a decade as an ordained monk, living, studying, and writing in Tibetan Buddhist and Zen communities in Asia. I spoke with Stephen Batchelor in 2016. You know, I feel that all the way through your writing, you talk about doubt and questioning as a, as a radical basis for spiritual life. And I get curious, as I see that as such a thread in you and through your work, about whether you trace the roots of that, that reverence for doubt and questioning, or a sense of the primacy of that, into, you know, however you would describe the religious or spiritual background of your early mm -hmm. life. I grew up uh, in a sort of humanist background. My uh, family had long departed from any active involvement in the church. So I didn't have any religious education. I never went to any religious services. And in some ways, uh, I never really asked those kinds of questions that religion would address. I, I, I grew up as a child who I think was quite sensitive, and I was further sensitized by the fact that I grew up uh, in a single-parent family, which yeah. at the time was uh, also very, very unusual. unusual. Yeah. So I did feel different, and I attributed a lot of that to not growing up with a, a father. And this made me perhaps more introverted than I already was. And I do recall being at school, for example, 
and wondering why the teachers uh, never addressed the quality of our own subjectivity. In other words, mm, the, mm. the kind of anxiety that I became aware of quite early on uh, that struck me as both troubling and yet somehow taboo. It wasn't something you, you talked about. Perhaps right. if I'd gone to Sunday school or church, these issues would have been addressed. But um, I was thrown back on a kind of deep curiosity about what it meant to exist. Yeah. And that, I guess, is perhaps lying at the roots of my own uh, subsequent fascination with doubt, with questioning, with astonishment, with wonder, mm. as the very, very root of what we call spirituality or religion. Mm. I also remember lying awake at night as a child and... Uh, and wondering why I couldn't stop the incessant uh, outpouring of, of thoughts and chatter. The mind seemed endlessly restless. Um, and that perhaps was a, a foretaste of what I would subsequently know as meditation. Yes. Tell me, when you say you were immediately drawn, captured by Buddhism, in, uh, yeah. in immediately converted and, and drawn in and really gave yourself li your life over to it, um, in Dharamsala and thereafter, what, what can you, how do you describe what captured you, what you've discovered there? I think what impressed me most was the uh, presence uh, of the Tibetan people who had only recently gone into exile about 12 years before. Yeah. And I'd never met people like that before, people who were living in great poverty, great, uh, you know, enormous uh, distress, and yet had within them a kind of a stillness, a, a kind of radiance in a way, and not just the, the lamas, but the ordinary people. I was immensely moved by that. I'd never come across it in, in England, in Europe, where I'd grown up. Mm. And at the same time, I'm also aware that there was a high degree of uh, romanticism, uh, idealization, perhaps, you know, it allowed certain deep longings to come to the surface. You mean in, your I, in yourself? You were in myself, mm -hmm, yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, and I was drawn. I was just so far. I was completely. Uh, I fell in love with it. Basically. Yeah, right. I think intellectually as well. Right. I mean, the, yes. the theology, the worldview, um, the richness of the tradition. That's right. Fortunately, I think, given my disposition, I landed in, in one of the Tibetan communities where the Buddhism was not so much about mystical experience or mandalas and all those things, but it was a very rigorous, uh, intellectual, right. critical tradition. Uh, that, too, engaged me. I wasn't being presented with something I just had to blindly believe. Yeah, although it is interesting to me that you you did connect with particular intensity to Tibetan Buddhism and then to Zen. And in the spectrum of Buddhism, I mean, you know, those are the traditions. I mean, the, certainly the Tibetan tradition has a very developed supernatural, I don't know, you know, you can use like different words for that, but mm -hmm. um, world of heavens and hells and, yes. and, uh, and a reincarnated leader. And Zen also has very, very mystical aspects. So it was kind of interesting to me, given that you now, you know, you, you are a voice for what you call secular Buddhism or, mm -hmm. or your Buddhist atheism, that that's really where you were rooted in Buddhism and to begin with. I think I realized when I got to Dharamsala that there was a, a whole experience of human life that I'd been excluded from as a child. Mm. As I said, I hadn't gone to church. 
Um, I'd not been raised in that milieu. And I think at some level, I had missed that. And so the the exotic aspects of Tibetan Buddhism, its mystical, uh, rather metaphysical yes. uh, teachings, uh, again, filled a void within me. And so initially, I was very drawn to that whole side of the Dharma. But at the same time, and this, I think, operated as a constant tension through my uh, training was the rather unconscious attraction to the metaphysics, the mysticism, but constantly I would return back to the emphasis on reason, on the emphasis on mental and intellectual clarity. The two coexist quite happily in the Tibetan uh, mm -hmm. world. And at a certain point, I think I got the religious thing somehow out of my system a bit. And I came back, perhaps, to the sort of humanism uh, in which I'd been raised, and yet now infused with a kind of Buddhist spirituality. Right. There's a place in your writing where you describe, I think you say that it's the closest thing you might describe having to a mystical experience mm -hmm. in Dharamsala. And I love the way you talk. You said it gave no answers. It only revealed the massiveness of the question. <laughs> yes. Now, that's the point that, um, in a way, questioning became for me the, the real prime source of my practice and my life. Mm -hmm. And it was an experience that came upon me. And I, I don't hesitate to use the word mystical. Mm -hmm. uh, it was not something for which I had been at all prepared. Um, I was walking uh, in a woodland, and uh, suddenly I was just overwhelmed uh, by the sheer surprise that this was happening at all. Uh, and it struck me with a, it was like a visceral blow to the whole body. It was a deeply emotional um, opening uh, to life in a way I'd never even suspected before. And yet it wasn't uh, presented to me as a set of solutions or answers to you know, human questions, but rather it exposed what I still feel to be the utter primacy of the, uh, the questioning, the doubting. But it's not an intellectual thing. It seizes one's whole body-mind yeah. uh, with a, an undeniable uh, sense of uh, power, really. And I've pursued that ever since, and that still animates my practice very much today. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being, today with secular Buddhist Stephen Batchelor. the language of coming out as a secular Buddhist. <laughs> um, talk a little bit about that, why it feels that way. And I guess that's also a reflection on the reactions you received, you've received across the years. Yeah, I've, um, since I started writing, um, I've toyed with a number of terms to try to describe the kind of Buddhism that I'm trying to articulate. I've used the word existential, I've used the word agnostic, atheist, and now I'm exploring the implications of this sense of secular. Right. 
what I'm what I'm looking for is a way to recover what I think is very much at the heart of the Buddhist tradition that I don't think is religious uh, in the sense of a formal religious set of beliefs and practices, but once again goes back to seeking a language to address these primary questions. And I feel in many ways the approach of what we might understand as the teaching of the historical Buddha is in some ways closer to Hellenistic philosophy, say the skeptics or the Epicureans or the Stoics, who again we don't think of as religious, but nonetheless these were communities of men and women who took these sorts of questions with utmost seriousness and developed a way of thinking, a way of practicing, a way of living together communally uh, that to me resonate very closely with the uh, early Buddhist communities around Gautama. And so what I'm seeking is both to recover something of the early tradition and to not assume that it need take an overtly religious form, but can find a voice that speaks to us in our utterly secular condition. That may not be the language I'll continue using, but right. I do find it's useful. And I also find it, uh, it gets a very, um, people respond to that. You know, I just want to put it out there, and and I know you are very aware of this yourself, that there's a very loud echo in, in the way you are, um, I don't know, I don't want to call it a critique of Buddhism, mm -hmm. but the way you are reexamining Buddhism with movements in monotheistic tradition and certainly Christianity. And, you know, you, you the language you use about, you know, looking at the canon, excavating the discourses in the life of Buddha, you know, a historical critical analysis of text and tradition. I mean, there's a there's a long tradition of that in Christianity. So how would you begin to tell or retell the story of who the Buddha was, what he was like, and, and how the distinction you see between this historical Buddha and the Buddha that you are uncovering? Okay. Well, I have, uh, as you seem to uh, suggest, been strongly influenced by movements within Christian theology. And I think, it, I think we are offered extraordinarily helpful tools uh, to apply uh, a similar understanding of the Buddha, his early teachings. And Buddhism does present the Buddha as an almost divine, godlike figure with rather peculiar... Uh, physical characteristics. It uh, presents the Buddha's teaching as a very well worked out, quite sophisticated uh, metaphysical theory with different realms of existence and reincarnation and so forth and so on. But when you go back to the, the texts that are the earliest source we have that predate the arising of the different Buddhist schools, the different orthodoxies and so on, we start to get a rather different uh, sense of what's going on. The Pali Canon, which is the earliest collection we uh, have to work with, when you read these texts, you really find yourself in a, in a very human world. Uh, the Buddha and his uh, followers, the different kings and other figures he interacts with, inhabit a, a quirky, uh, rather tawdry human world mm -hmm. uh, that is uh, very much like the world that we know today. And you find that so many of the Buddha's teachings are not uh, stated as kind of uh, final dogmatic truths, but they emerge in the uh, interactions he has with the people of his time. Mm. So the more that I've 
delved into this, uh, the more I find that the the carapace of uh, the divinization of the Buddha, the the metaphysical theories, begins to somehow fall away, and one recovers uh, a deeply human. Uh, setting and a deeply human discourse. Here, here are some things you've said about the Buddha. What is truly original in the Buddha's teaching, I discovered, was his secular outlook. Or, mm-hmm. or here you said the genius of the Buddha lay in his imagination. <laughs> so yes. open those statements up for me. Okay. Well, um, I, I have been criticized, and I think it's a legitimate criticism, that am I perhaps simply finding what I'm already looking for. Do I uh, Which is a human pick? inclination, after all. Yeah, one of those quirky things about us, right? <laughs> it is. Yeah. And uh, so, yeah, I, I do have to be uh, cautious and careful uh, in not simply projecting my own preformed ideas of what Buddhism is and then miraculously finding that uh, in the Buddha's teaching. So uh, I'm aware of those criticisms, but uh, as you suggest... Uh, Uh, This is a natural human way to enter into a dialogue with these texts. Uh, As a practicing Buddhist, I'm not interested in separating myself from these discourses by some kind of scientific objectivity that uh, pretends to somehow see things in a cold, clinical way. These discourses uh, are engaging for me because they speak to me. And I think this has always been the case in every situation where Buddhism has gone into another culture, be it China, Tibet, Japan. It speaks to the needs of those people at those times and enters a kind of dialogue. And obviously, the passages, the teachings that speak to those people are the ones that meet their particular needs at their time. And the... um, The power of Buddhism uh, to somehow survive is not because it's preserved a certain fixed set of dogmas or whatever, but actually uh, has managed again and again to reinvent itself. In other words, Buddhism's survival has to do with the capacity it has to trigger imaginative transformations amongst those who are drawn to and engage with its uh, ideas and with its practices. So what's going on in modernity uh, is really no different in principle to what went on when it encountered the shamanistic culture of Tibet, and Tibetan Buddhism necessarily carries that uh, context very visibly, or the more Taoist uh, culture of China and Japan, which Zen, of course, is yeah. you know very infused with that. So in that sense, I really feel that what I'm doing, and also you know, not just myself, but I think uh, a whole generation of us are struggling to somehow articulate uh, not a cold, objective account of what the Buddha was or said, but what his teachings somehow have to say to us in our condition, how they address the needs of our own uh, suffering humanity. But you talk about, I mean, here's something you said, just as Christianity has struggled to explain how an essentially good and loving God could have created a world with so much suffering and justice and horror, so Buddhism has struggled to account for the presence of joy, delight, and enchantment in a world that is supposedly nothing but a veil of tears. I mean, I know I've changed the subject a little bit here, but it's, mm-hmm. it's another way of struggling to get at the heart of what's going on in the tradition. 
No, that's right. The, uh, I think belief is the big problem, yeah. frankly. Uh, not, med- not belief as a kind of hypothesis, well, maybe this is true, I'll give it a go, but belief in the sense that you know, this is the way reality works. And that often calls upon supernaturalistic type explanations, be they theistic or be they the law of karma that operates over lifetimes. And this becomes increasingly the kind of uh, public face of, uh, let's say, Buddhism, religion caters to people's need for security. Uh, We do live in a highly uh, contingent, uh, Mm -hmm. unpredictable, changing, tragic world, and religion provides us with some sort of stable basis on which we can begin to make sense of all of that. So I don't, you know, I recognize that such consolation is, of course, much needed in our world, but... I think that's achieved at the cost of somehow obscuring what is radical, what is original, um, what is perhaps deeply unsettling mm-hmm. in what the Buddha is saying. Mm-hmm. I don't think the Buddha is actually interested in offering us a consolatory uh, view of the world that will just make us better able to cope with our lives. I think he really wants us to deeply engage with our lives without premising that engagement on certain non-negotiable beliefs. Yeah, and and one of the things that you point out is also that when we try to reduce these traditions to belief, it actually distances people from the immediacy of the mystery of life and mm-hmm. of you know and you talk about how Korean Zen also you know actually cultivate and Zen in particular cultivates virtues of perplexity and astonishment and and wonderment and and in fact doubt so That's that right. so that at the heart of the tradition itself there is there is a contrast to that that dynamic you're describing that's absolutely right. And and I suspect the same is also true in Christianity, mm-hmm. uh, when you go back to the actual life of Jesus and what he struggled with in his life. But Zen was a movement that emerged in China about a thousand or more years after the Buddha. And I think it actually sought, again, to rebel against these consoling certainties of scholarship and belief and return to what the Buddha's own experience was when he left supposedly this luxurious life he was brought up in and goes outside the palace, sees a sick person, an aging person, a corpse. That's where the existential question, the sense of mystery, the sense of astonishment, the sense of of, of deep, deep curiosity and bafflement begin. And his awakening Uh, I can only understand as some kind of resolution to those primary existential questions. And Zen seeks to recover that. Buddhism tends to become uh, a, a set of answers to these questions. And the questions then slowly, but perhaps inevitably, slip away and get forgotten. So Zen comes back. And the great attraction to me to Zen Buddhism after my time with the Tibetans was precisely this recovery of this primacy of questioning. Mm. And so our meditations in Korea were, you know, for three months, twice a year, we would just sit in a darkened room and ask ourselves, what is this? And rest with that question, nothing else. I loved it. It so was, uh, I mean I know marvelous. I know that the nature of what we're talking about defies words but can you speak <laughs> a little bit more about that experience What is it What, what is it um, <laughs> <laughs> Well first of all uh, the words the form of words and they could just as well be who am I or 
There's many, many Zen koans that try to get at the same thing. What is this starts out as a form of words. You repeat it to yourself when your mind has achieved a degree of stillness and quiet uh, in a more meditative frame. But once the words begin to sink in, once they, the, this question becomes a kind of almost a physical sensation, it begins to mm. infuse your whole body-mind. Uh, at that point, you can let go of the actual form of words and you can focus far more on simply infusing your consciousness of whatever is going on in that moment uh, with this deep sense of uh, curiosity, puzzlement, bafflement. It's so difficult to find the right word. Yeah. But it is really about opening up to life as profoundly mysterious. And rather than trying to solve that mystery, it's actually about penetrating that mystery. And when you penetrate a mystery, it doesn't become less mysterious. It becomes, if anything, more mysterious. So this source of questioning and doubt uh, is something that, uh, as you go into it, only intensifies, only becomes, in a sense, more pronounced. But that doesn't lead you into a kind of a chaotic bafflement. It actually becomes a still, uh, I think, rather um, serene uh, relationship that you begin to cultivate with life as such, mm. and that everything, every detail of life, every person you meet, every situation you find yourself in, uh, is one that, uh, in a sense, is uh, is deeply surprising, deeply odd. It it lets go of your habitual views and opinions about this, that, or the other, uh, have less firm ground to stand on. I don't even know if this fits, but I, I have to say when I... I read you and hear you talking about surprise. I was thinking about the great rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel. Are you familiar with Heschel? I've not really. I, I mean, yeah. I'm aware of who he is, but I, I can't. I mean, see I, I think he also he talked about depth theology, and he also had this sense of mystery at the core, which, which in itself was orthodox, and also, in its way, challenged everything that is orthodox mm -hmm. at both at the same time. When he he would talk about surprise as a as a spiritual virtue, right? So here's something. He said, I would say about individuals, an individual dies when he ceases to be surprised. I am surprised every mm. morning that I see the sunshine again. When I see an act of evil, I'm not accommodated. I'm still surprised. That's why I'm against it, why I can hope against it. We must learn how to be surprised, not to adjust ourselves. I am the most maladjusted person in society, <laughs> which is really what you're saying about the Buddha also did not, you know, that there's something that the part of what these traditions are for is to unsettle us in ways that yes. that we need. Yeah, yeah that, that quotation is, is wonderful. I've not heard it before, but that's exactly what. Uh, he says it far better than I can say it. <laughs> I think that I think that that, that is just wonderful. Uh, I remember also um, after my experience in the forest in Dharamsala, I found very little in Indian Buddhist, Tibetan Buddhist texts that really spoke of this. I was mm. kind of surprised, as it were, and that led me to actually seek uh, insight as to what had gone on in me at that point uh, in non-Buddhist traditions. And one of the first texts that really spoke to me in this way was. Uh, Martin Buber's I and Thou. Yeah. Again, this is famous because of this relationship, uh, the centrality of this relationship. But there are other passages in that book in which he too uh, taps into this deep sense of puzzlement, astonishment, surprise. I found it also in the work of uh, the Catholic philosopher Gabriel Marcel. Mm. I found it in Heidegger. Uh, I find, and then you find it even in Socrates. You know, the yeah. source of philosophy is wonder. And 
I was rather uncomfortable with the fact that the Buddhism that I was engaged with at that point didn't seem to have much room for that. And that's one of the reasons that I was drawn into Zen, because they emphasize it, make it very much the central point. And an emphasis that you, I feel, are just living more and more passionately into in your work is is then this enlivening interplay that might seem counterintuitive on the outside. Mm-hmm. You know, you say, above all, secular Buddhism is something to do, not to believe yes. in. It's a lived yes. piety. It's creating the conditions whereby we can embark on a way of life that is not dictated by our instinctive reactivity, our habits, our fears, and so forth and so on, but uh, stems from an openness an inner openness that is unconditioned by those forces and that allows the freedom to think differently, to act differently, to respond more fully, and in doing so, to uh, allow the human person to flourish, to realize more fully the potentials that each one of us has. You can listen again and share this conversation with Stephen Batchelor through our website, onbeing.org. I'm Krista Tippett. On Being continues in a moment. On Being is brought to you by the John Templeton Foundation. The Templeton Foundation supports academic research and civil dialogue on the deepest, most perplexing questions facing humankind. Who are we? Why are we here? And where are we going? To learn more, please visit templeton.org. The Templeton Foundation. Stay curious. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. Today, exploring the secular Buddhism of teacher and writer Stephen Batchelor. For him, secularism opens to the perplexity, astonishment, and mystery of living in this world. His reimagining of this vast tradition echoes the way every great tradition cherishes questions that probe ever deeper into what is still unknown. I'm so aware at this moment in time that somehow I feel we are, and I would even use the word evolving, um, as a species with and science is a companion in this um and and spiritual life in its all its modern fluidity is is part of this and yet it's such a paradoxical moment because when you talk about this quality of non-reactive stillness not as an end in itself but as a as a way that can lead us into a way of flourishing, can be discerning and directive of the right action, right living, which is a Buddhist phrase. Mm-hmm. So much of culture conspires against, you know, non-reactive stillness. Mm-hmm. Um, not necessarily maliciously, but I mean, I, I mean, I'm talking about how we are, you know, struggling to kind of live with these technologies and also looking at the world writ large and, and, uh, you know, non-reactive stillness is the opposite of uh, the reaction to, uh, you know, a terrorist attack in Paris mm-hmm. or or things that happen uh, closer to home that are less dramatic but equally devastating. You know what I mean? We're it's such yes, a complicated no, it, it, time. Mm-hmm. 
No, I I, I completely agree. The um, we we live in a world where we're bombarded with information that we are pressed to produce and to achieve in a way that's uh, almost uh, violent at times. At the same time, though, uh, what has really surprised me uh, in my 40 years of involvement in Buddhism is the sudden uh, embracing in the mainstream culture of the practice of mindfulness. Now, this, of course, is an essential Buddhist uh, meditation uh, that until recently was the you know practiced by a handful of people um, like myself in India and in retreat centers and suddenly it's become mainstream now what's going on here this is a movement that in its very essence is uh, questioning this uh, frenzy of activity mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. our culture so is so embedded in I think it's in a sense timely that People are looking for something like a non-reactive stillness, if that word is helpful. Mm. And mindfulness allows them the very simple possibility of stopping, just pausing, opening up a gap in their thoughts and their feelings. And this, I think, is um, perhaps arising at this time because we are becoming conscious as a community, as a society, uh, as a human community, Uh, of this stressful uh, overload that uh, is so demanding and I think so undermining in many ways. It Mm -hmm. prevents us, I think, from really living fully. And I think, you know, people are are sensitive creatures. They they intuit this. They sense this. They don't want to have a life that's just dictated by these uh, forces. Mm. So um, on the one hand, yes, what the Dharma is teaching, but I think this is also true in terms of most of our religious traditions. They're actually standing up to the uh, drives of our nature and offering another way of living. Uh, I don't think Buddhism is unique in that, but it does have uh, methodologies, uh, practices that can be quite readily converted into somewhat uh, secular forms without, I think, losing something that is... uh, essential to them. And um, it's quite remarkable the, to the extent to which this has been picked up. I experience you also to continue to be in a very vital and creative relationship with tradition, mm-hmm. including the tradition that has transcendent uh, aspects. I mean, you you revere the Dalai Lama and you know you speak about how much you've learned from him across the years and but there's no no greater embodiment of the, you know, the supernatural belief system of of Tibetan Buddhism in particular. Mm-hmm. But I I sense you choosing to live in that place of um, of of relationship and and even reverence for that. I mean, you've talked. You said Alain de Botton, who I've also had on the show, who you know suggested in the future we might have atheist cathedrals. <laughs> yes. But you said you know you think the holy places including the holy places of the past, are necessary and, and to be honored. Is that correct? That's true. I, I realize that sits perhaps for some uncomfortably with some of the other things I write, which have a very sort of secular, pared-down feel to them. But one of the things that I greatly uh, cherish is a pilgrimage. Mm. And uh, pretty much every year for the last few years, I've been going back to India primarily, and visiting uh, these uh, ancient sites. Uh, Buddhism, of course, no longer really exists in India. But there's some wonderful um, places, both 
those where the Buddha lived and, and taught, we've now you know, identified these places, we can visit them. And also sites of ancient Buddhist monasteries in India, such as Ajanta and elsewhere. And I find, um, particularly perhaps as a somewhat intellectual person, that actually physically going to these places that carry these memories, let's say. I don't see this in a weird mystical way of vibrations or something like that. But when I find myself in these places and I sit quietly in such places and I bring to mind what has occurred in these places in the past, it connects me to the tradition in a nonverbal way uh, that is somehow a kind of literal earthing of my practice. Mm. But I must say that when I find myself trying to uh, replicate such practices here in the modern West, uh, it doesn't quite work in the same way. I think, nonetheless, we do need to be open to the fact that we're not just looking for a philosophy of life. Mm-hmm. We're looking to create uh, spaces, uh, spaces where we can come together as strangers and publicly celebrate what we value most deeply. And I think Alain de Botton's idea of atheist cathedrals, one might you know, think of that as slightly tongue-in-cheek, but I think he has a very important point. I think we need spaces, we need communal spaces that are not, in a sense, overly inflected with our traditional religious traditions, but allow people to congregate, uh, perhaps in silence, perhaps by reciting poetry or prayer or whatever it might be, um, just to recover that sense of human belonging. I keep thinking of a conversation I had with the late um, Yaroslav Pelikan, who was just one of the great scholars of Christian tradition. And in fact, before he died, he did this monumental study of creeds across time and the globe. So this gets at kind of what's the danger of creating a new secular Buddhism, right? Because um, the, the human condition remains involved. I mean, he, he said the only, tradi- the only alternative to tradition is bad tradition. But, <laughs> but what he meant by that is that tradition has this heft. I mean, it, yes. has, its, it has its problems, right, to state it mildly. But it's, it's a work of generations, and our traditions hold great beauty and wisdom and he said you know you can say that you're that you're throwing the old creed out but as soon as you start creating that new community according to your vision you do in fact start creating a new creed and the danger is that it cannot have the gravitas um, or the wisdom of, mm-hmm. of what came before I mean is this something you think about I think about this a lot um, many of my critics would be quite happy for me to stop calling myself a Buddhist and even some of those who, who like my work uh, feel that the Buddhism gets in the way. Uh, but I disagree profoundly with that. The rootedness in tradition is, is, is central to me. And I see Buddhist tradition, I suspect like other traditions also, um, as not something which is static and fixed and somehow uh, preserved in formaldehyde. But it is something that is alive. And it, uh, it evolves and it changes over time. I believe that that change is not something that can be speeded up uh, with all of our modern technologies mm. and access to information. I think of Buddhism as more like There's an There's not organism. an app for that. 
No, not yet, <laughs> although they're working on them. Uh, I mean, even the apps, which will come, no doubt. Mm -hmm. In fact, they already exist. Uh, I just think are the ways in which people can access uh, the wisdom of these traditions in yeah. ways that they're used to doing, you know, so many other things now. Uh, so in, in, the, in some sense, I find it helpful to think of being rooted in a tradition without being stuck in a tradition. But I do feel uh, quite passionately that uh, we need another kind of language in order to articulate this tradition in ways that speak to our sense of modernity, of the kind of creatures we are now in a world informed so much by the natural sciences, a sense of being sentient creatures who have evolved on the surface of this planet that's spinning around this sun. This is a worldview quite different from that in which Buddhism has grown up. Krista Tippett, and this is On Being, today with secular Buddhist Stephen Batchelor. You've been speaking of a phrase for a while, and it's the final chapter in your book, After Buddhism, um, this notion of a culture of awakening. And I wonder if you would talk a little bit about that. Okay. Um, this idea first sort of came to mind when I started to ask myself the question, is Buddhism a religion in the conventional sense? And if it's not a religion, then what is it? And this gave rise to the idea that it's, it's, it's a culture. And, of course, all religions are embedded in, in some sort of culture, but I'd like to put the emphasis more on the culture which might have religious elements within it, but to emphasize that, that a culture is a, uh, a culture arises out of communities that share common values and practices, and over time they generate uh, a common sense of what matters in life, a common ethical, aesthetic, um, philosophical sense of the world. They live communally uh, according to uh, similar principles. And there is a beautiful parable in the early Buddhist texts where the Buddha sees his eightfold path, his way of life, as leading not to nirvana, which is the traditional view, but leading to the rebuilding of a city. And uh, that, to me, is, is a very, very valuable source for thinking of Buddhism as a culture. I like to think, and again, I might be wrong, but uh, the, the Buddha was concerned not with founding another religion. He was concerned to establish a set of norms which are enacted through the Eightfold Path that would give rise to another kind of civilization. Um, that might be rather grandiose today to seek for another civilization. But a culture, I think, is something that actually is emerging in, uh, let's say, modernity. I think in America particularly, when I come here to teach and to uh, lead courses and so on, I become very much aware that over the last 
30, 40 years, uh, a, a Buddhist culture is emerging. Mm. Uh, and it's inflecting not only formal Buddhist centers, but also we find it reflected in literature, in poetry, in music, in the arts in general, in philosophy. Buddhist ideas are beginning to sort of infiltrate into our wider sense of uh, life uh, in modernity. Uh, America's quite distinctive here. There are many uh, prominent uh, artists from different disciplines right. who uh, self-identify as Buddhists. And likewise, I see this advent of mindfulness that is spreading so rapidly as a, another indicator of what Buddhism is providing for us is not a, a religious belief, but a kind of cultural inspiration. How that will play out, of course, we don't know, but I do feel it's almost assuming now a kind of unstoppable momentum. Yeah. And actually, I had I wanted to read um, some language from your 1989 book, um, "The Faith to Doubt," which is a wonderful book. Um, uh-huh. I just want to I just want to read it because it's beautiful. But then just it's and I think it's a wonderful way to kind of come back to where we started. Um, the way of the Buddha is a living response to a living question. Yet whenever it has become institutionalized, its vital response has become a well-formulated answer. The seemingly important task of preserving a particular set of answers often causes the very questions which gave rise to the answers to be forgotten. Then the lucid answers Buddhism provides are cut off from the stammering voice that asks the questions, mm. which is such a such a an incisive analysis of what what we do with religion in general but but as something that i think modern people are acutely aware of and working yeah. with no i think that's right it's interesting it's it's <laughs> it's always i find strange to hear myself quoted back yeah. because i wrote that book you know more than 25 years ago but i would say it in exactly the same way today mm. uh, that is a thread that i think continues to run through and, and animate what I'm doing. And I do think people are, you know, are very sensitized to these questions. And yet we often in our culture don't really have a, a clearly formulated and expressed language or cultural forms, as it were, that allow us to speak that language. Mm-hmm. There's a kind of taboo in some ways, too, against these things. Um, I'm not interested, really, in uh, in establishing Buddhism as another religion in this country. I think, really, it uh, its its reach is probably far greater than that. And as you say, it's something that you can be a Christian or a Muslim or a Jew or a, an atheist, and these practices uh, are just as applicable, just as uh, accessible, just as uh, fruitful, no matter what your your sort of belief frame might be. It's 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 also it's fascinating that somehow it all you know we continually as much as we're ta- we were talking about secular Buddhism and uh, and it also also always cir- circles back to these layers of mystery um, you know or yeah. this is how you said it in Buddhism without beliefs questions that probe ever deeper into what is still unknown. <laughs> yes, no, that's right. Yes, exactly. Well, I, of course, I say exactly. It's what I wrote. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. I I um. I want to ask you, this is, this is also from Buddhism Without Belief, since, since death alone is certain and the time of death uncertain, what should I do? Mm. You're right. You know, I think so 
you are bringing the the way Buddhist tradition has grappled with the the ancient human question back back to that question: What does it mean to be human, and and how do we want to live mm. without the the promise of something beyond this life? Um, and you, you said so again: Since death alone is certain, and the time of death uncertain, what should I do? You wrote, over time, such meditation penetrates our primary sense of being in the world at all. And I I wondered if you would speak, as we close, just about, in a very concrete way, whatever that means, you know, yesterday or today, about how this observation, this, this questioning penetrates, you know, ordinary life, an ordinary day in the world, your primary sense of being in the world at all. Well, the meditation on death that uh, you've just read out is actually an adaptation of a Tibetan uh, reflection on mortality. Mm-hmm. Uh, as a young man, I did this practice daily. Uh, I found of all the Tibetan practices I did, it was the one that was most life-changing. To the extent that today, I find that my sense of being in the world is, is deeply infused uh, with uh, an awareness of how this may be my last day on earth. And these reflections on death uh, are not in the remotest sense uh, morbid or gloomy. The weird paradox is that the more you ask yourself that question, death is certain, its time is uncertain, what should I do? This brings you back to a very vivid uh, sense that you're alive. It intensifies the sense of aliveness of, in terms of how you see the colors, uh, the shapes, the leaves, the flowers, the whatever impacts you visually or from the ears to the nose to the tongue to the body to the mind. It, it is a kind of intensifier of being alive, a kind of almost a, a celebration um, of being here at all. And that is infused uh, not only with a sense of wonder, but also with a sense of possibility, a sense of responsibility, that in what you say, think, do, this may be your final legacy uh, mm. on this earth. That, to me, is where this uh, reflection uh, leads me. And it's with me, I wouldn't say every single minute of every single day. I also have moments in which I'm not particularly <laughs> proud of how I speak or act or think. But broadly speaking, I find myself constantly returning to what's implicit in that question. And that has made my life, uh, I think, very full. I, I'm deeply grateful for the practices that this tradition has brought me. And I very much uh, hope that others, too, will find uh, value in these ideas and it will allow their lives, too, to flourish. Stephen Batchelor's books include Buddhism Without Beliefs and Confession of a Buddhist Atheist. I especially enjoy his early work, The Faith to Doubt. His most recent book is Secular Buddhism, Imagining the Dharma in an Uncertain World.
On Being is Chris Hegel, Lily Percy, Mariah Helgeson, Maya Tarrell, Marie Sambilay, Malka Fenevesi, Aaron Farrell, Lauren Dordal, Tony Liu, Bertina Davis, Bethany Iverson, Aaron Colasacco, and Kristen Lynn. Our lovely theme music is provided and composed by Zoe Keating. And the last voice you hear singing our final credits in each show is hip-hop artist Lizzo. On Being was created at American Public Media. Our funding partners include the Fetzer Institute, helping to build the spiritual foundation for a loving world. Find them at Fetzer.org. Calliopeia Foundation, working to create a future where universal spiritual values form the foundation of how we care for our common home. Humanity United, advancing human dignity at home and around the world. Find out more at humanityunited.org, part of the Omidyar Group. The Henry Luce Foundation, in support of public theology reimagined. The Osprey Foundation, a catalyst for empowered, healthy, and fulfilled lives. And the Lilly Endowment, an Indianapolis-based private family foundation dedicated to its founders' interests in religion, community development, and education. On Being is distributed by PRX, the public radio exchange, and is a Krista Tippett public production. Ah.